Morning, church. It's good to see you. Probably the first time many of you are seeing me. As Lonnie said, uh, my name is Benjamin. I'm from the UK. He's very right about that. And, but I do know how to bry, so just relax. And, um, you know, I am astounded um, just by the goodness of God, by the flow of the Spirit. And I want to say to you the two prophetic words that uh, were brought this morning. Uh, th- that, that is absolutely spot on in terms of what I'm going to share with you this morning. And, uh, uh, you know, when you have guest preacher somewhere, it's actually, I find it easier if the person says, now this is the text that you're speaking on, and, and, but my, with my dates and stuff, I miss Nehemiah. So Zalani said to me, oh, you can speak on whatever you want. And so I had to just go in prayer and ask God for you guys, okay, God, what do you want me to share with this church this morning? But before I kind of get into it, I need to just introduce myself a little bit more, uh, just so you can kind of know me, and I can kind of at least know your eyes, um, although some of you are being naughty, well done. Um, so, uh, like I said, I'm from the UK. Um, I used to work uh, for an Anglican church. I was a youth minister uh, many years ago, um, and uh, long story short, I got called into YWAM, which is Youth with a Mission. I ended up in Namibia, and then eventually uh, here in Durban. And uh, I met my wife, who's from Scotland, and we got married uh, over a decade ago. In fact, we're celebrating 10 years this November. So really excited about that. And uh, uh, we've got three little children, six, four, and two. My daughter's at Winston Park Primary here. And uh, my two boys, they go to um, a preschool over at Hillside there. And we love South Africa. And the Lord has uh, been good to us here. He has blessed us here. He has prospered us here. And uh, I'm also involved in uh, my local church. And we go to a church in Westville, and we have the uh, privilege of being on the eldership team there. And so I kind of have, you know, uh, got some responsibilities in the local church and also some responsibilities in this crazy movement uh, called Youth with a Mission. Um, And so I'm not going to go too much into that, but just so you can kind of get my context a little bit this morning. So I want to kind of just be open with you this morning, and I've not got time to waste. I want to kind of get into it. And so I want to be a little bit open with you and a little bit vulnerable, even though I don't know you. But I'm just assuming that you're nice people because Zelani's also my friend. So you'll have to answer to him if you give any trouble after the sermon. Sorry I won't be attending your AGM either, um, but I'm sure it'll be a great time. So this is one of the things I found out about myself during the pandemic. The spiritual rhythms that I have developed in previous seasons of my life, have not been sufficient for the season of hardship like the one that we've been through. I don't know if that rings true for you or not, but I've realized that Jesus is inviting me into a new way of living the Christian life if I'm to have genuine joy, which is overflowing, Genuine love, that's overflowing, and effectiveness and fruitfulness for his kingdom. The old paradigm is not enough to sustain the output that is needed in this season. Especially if you're a minister, but even if you're not, the pastoral load has been really great. As people all over have been falling apart, friends. So this morning I want to ask you, how is your soul doing Are you operating out of a place of overflow? 
How is your fruit? That's my question. That's my question. Are you feeling weary and tired? Just enough energy to put one foot in front of the other. And during times of crisis and times of great change, there's an opportunity, friends, to set a new trajectory. And I want you to know, as a church, the sense that I get is that you are on a new trajectory. And we can celebrate that change, friends. But any change must be grounded in the right foundation. Otherwise, we can find ourselves reacting to the past instead of building our lives on the rock, which is the person and teaching of Jesus. So as we come out of COVID, and as you reconsider your effectiveness as a church and the direction that you are heading in, I want us to think this morning about the foundation for mission. And I'm going to connect some thoughts from the book of Nehemiah. But we're really going to look at John 15 this morning, verses 1 to 11. So if you'd like to turn there, you're most welcome. John 15, 1 to 11. And we're going to allow this text to help us process and give practical handles on how we can remain close to the Lord and fruitful for his kingdom. So listen to the words of Jesus that John records. John 15, reading from verse 1. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may be more fruitful. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Powerful. Beautiful. Consider the context of this passage for a second. Jesus is comforting his disciples as he knows he's about to be crucified. He's about to die. But he's also preparing them. And he's pointing the way for the mission that is coming. And as we come to understand this passage, we have to understand that the context is in part the outworking of our faith. And what we find there is something almost counterintuitive. It is a key posture for effectiveness in the Christian life. For you and for I, our fruitfulness. And if you get nothing else this morning, the word I want you to write down or remember or etch on your heart is the word abide. God has a purpose for his people, his branches, that we bear fruit. And in doing so, we bring him 
glory. The gospel is fundamentally about God. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. What is this fruit that Jesus is talking about? Well, it's essentially looking like Jesus in will and character. It's something like the fruit of the Spirit, which is listed in Galatians. So Raptor Church, he's more interested in who you are becoming than what you do for him. But who we are becoming necessarily leads to others coming to know about him. Because as we conform, as we are conformed by him to the image of his son, he becomes increasingly evident through our lives. Amen. So how can you be fruitful? Abide. Literally for the branches to stay connected to the vine. A life of intimate connection with Jesus. And I want to offer three pretty simple thoughts this morning from this passage on how we can do that. But because I'm, I'm, I'm going to be uh, trying to tie things in with Nehemiah, I'm going to link back to Nehemiah and, and some of the key things that we see Nehemiah model. So I want to offer you three thoughts. First, we need to recognize Jesus as the true vine. Second, we need to trust the good gardener. And that's hard. But third, we need to experience the beauty of abiding with Jesus. So first I want to look at Jesus, the true vine. Jesus says of himself that he is the true vine. We have to understand that that claim is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In particular, God's promises and purposes for his people. Israel had become a wild vine. And we see that picture used in the Old Testament of them. That is a vine without life, a vine uncared for, a vine with a lack of fruit or even sour fruit. And after grace upon grace, warning upon warning, God carries out judgment on his people to put an end to their evil and to bring them back to their senses. And so you know the story, the people are carried off in successive waves into exile But most significantly, in Ezekiel, we see God literally leaving the building. As Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon, Ezekiel sees this vision of God's presence leaving the Holy of Holies. And the presence of God moves east out of the Holy of Holies into the outer courts, eventually leaving the temple, leaving Jerusalem. And the presence of God, Ezekiel records it, comes to rest on a mountain east of Jerusalem. And and friends, we know that mountain today is the Mount of Olives. At the foot of that mountain is a garden, friends. That garden we know is the Garden of Gethsemane. God is going to bring his people back, but not just to a broken system, but to a new garden, friends. There in that garden... Living temples will be created, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Jesus Christ being the first of this new humanity. Consider the practical mercy of God bringing the exiles home in different waves. You guys have been thinking about some of what that meant in the book of Nehemiah. That is a story of one of the 
uh, I think it's the second or third return. Consider the mercy of God. What do they do when they return? They try desperately to establish their former way of being, their former way of life. They rebuild. And after the completion of the temple, the temple is rededicated. And then there's something super interesting in that story. It's an attempt by men to reinitiate a covenant with God. In fact, it's the only time in the Bible we see a covenant made by men. But there's a stark contrast if you know the story of the Bible. Because there was a first temple that Solomon dedicated. And during that dedication, God initiated a covenant with Solomon. God pitched up and his presence was so powerful on that day that the priests could literally not stand. The weight of his presence was such that they, 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 they were bowing down, not just out of choice, but because the glory of God was so present. But in this return, in this man-made covenant, God is quiet. There's no fire. There's no presence of God. There is silence. Why? Because God had something better in mind for his people, friends. This is what it means. This is what this story means. This is what Nehemiah is trying to teach us. We are incapable of getting to God and relating to him on our own strength. We cannot make a deal with him. We have to trust him to bridge the gap for us. That is the gospel of grace. It is a gift. It is not in your own strength or in your own power. The good news is this, is that God doesn't waste the hardness of our hearts, friends. He doesn't waste our self-righteousness, our futility. Israel's failing as a vine was to make them long for the true vine. It was to make them completely dependent on God and for them to wait on him for rescue. It was to ingrain this in them. A posture of surrender as a way of living and being in the world. Not as a destination to arrive at. And some scholars actually think that the strict reforms that Ezra brought in, initiated in the days of Nehemiah, that reaction to the immorality and the fear of, of, of being led into exile, the, the fear of the past, that was... Some commentators think that, that that's a forerunner to the ultra-religious sects we see in Jesus' day. The Pharisees being the main case in point. You see, friends, God wanted their hearts, their dependency, not their broken self-sufficiency. God was preparing them for his son. So that when Jesus, the true Israel, was revealed, they might turn and be saved from their sins unto relationship with the living God. So what's the point? How does this relate to Sarepta Church? How does that relate to our faith in this current moment? Well, in this way, if your heart is hard and tired this morning, if you know you've been relating to him in a transactional way, if you know you've been trying to manufacture your fruit, if you've been winning away from him or kicking against him, come back. Come back to the lover of your soul. There is an invitation from Jesus to practice joyful repentance. 
to give up broken self-sufficiency, to lay down your pride, to rather graciously accept his loving grace for you once again. There is a true vine and his name is Jesus. Friends, we need to turn to him all the time. And how do you practice that return? Well, we've got to make sure that we're not reactive when we go through times of trial. When we realize we've made a mistake or something bad has happened. We cannot course correct by moving in the opposite extreme of behavior. By focusing on ourselves and our journey and doubling down on our willpower. You cannot do that as a church. It will not lead to life. It will lead to death. We have to return to the center, the true vine, and take that posture of surrender and wait. And wait. Consider Nehemiah's response when he hears the news about the brokenness of his people. What does he do? The first thing he does is he withdraws and he meets with God. That's the first thing he does. In other words, he creates space to be with the Father. When we do this every week, friends, and we put down our chores, and we put down our work and our cell phones to be with God in community, that's what we call Sabbath. When was the last time you had one? If we're being honest. I'm not talking about a super complicated Jewish festival. Happens one. I'm just talking about you resting with God. That's my first thought. If you can't answer that question or you don't really know when was the last time you really enjoyed God or you really rested with him, I want you to think about it now for a second. What does it look like for you to take that up practically? I know we live busy lives, friends, sometimes, hey? But how are you going to connect with God this week? What will that look like? When will you do it? Where will you do it? If you can't answer those questions, it's unlikely that you're going to do it. But I would encourage you to think about it and think about it practically. So that's my first point. Come away with me. That's what I believe Jesus would want to say to us this morning. Here's my second thought. We've got to trust the good gardener. I want to say that again. We've got to trust the good gardener. Here's something which is deeply encouraging for me. God is more committed to your spiritual formation, to shaping you in the image of Jesus, than you will ever be committed to that process. He's way more committed than we are, friends. Therefore, we are not alone in our struggles, in our weakness, in our spiritual journey. God is not indifferent to our situation. He's a good gardener and he's committed to our fruitfulness. And he's doing this in two major ways, I would suggest. He's taking away what is unfruitful. He cuts away the lifeless. He removes the branch and he burns the branches. And and that can seem scary. But trust me, you don't want a bunch of branches in your garden of dead wood. You know, what do you do? You you take it away. The garden service, if, if you're so lucky, otherwise you naughtily burn it when no one's looking, right? Because it's, it's a hazard, man. It's a mess. And God is doing this in our lives for us. But he's also pruning what is fruitful. He, in other words, he's cultivating the living. This pruning is a form of love. It's not something to fear. Many times we look at God's discipline through the lens 
of how our parents or our carers discipline us as a child. Sometimes we approach it then, we, we assume that God is angry with us or that he's disappointed with us. But that's not God's heart, friends. We need to embrace the pruning as God's loving process, not resist it. Don't be unwise, friends. There are very real false finds in our lives that need to be taken away for our benefit. What dead branches is God removing from your life? Do you know? If he's gardening, and I take John 15 to say that he is, are you aware of what God's doing in your life? He's not trying to keep it a secret from you. It's a good question to ask the Lord that. Consider a major false vine in our present culture. That is hurry, busyness, and distraction. They cause us to disconnect functionally from the true vine as our source. In other words, there's a war going on for our attention, our thought life. An over-busy, hurried life, a life of speed, has become the new normal. Our present cultural moment. But it is toxic and it is opposed to the way of Jesus. Dallas Willard, a smart man, Christian writer and philosopher, he said this. He said, hurry is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. My personal tendency, if I'm being honest with you, is that when things aren't going well, when things aren't going well inside is I want to distract myself from that emotional pain and those challenges. I want to switch off my brain. I want to run away from prayer and abiding because I know that in that space I'm going to have to face it. Eventually, that leads to a numbness towards God and others. Instead, we settle for a Netflix binge. The cheap dopamine of scrolling and likes, constant work and busyness, worrying, alcohol, caffeine, name your drug of choice. The temporary pastor and writer John Marcoma, he identified 10 signs of soul disconnectedness. It's what I call vine disconnectedness. And this was his list. See if any of these sound familiar. Irritability, especially towards close family. Hypersensitivity, small things having a disproportionate effect on your emotional well-being. Restlessness, an inability to stop and slow down. Workaholism, non-stop activity, emotional numbness, out of order priorities, lack of care for your body, escapist behaviors, slippage of spiritual disciplines, isolation, even when present, our mind is somewhere else. And if you identify with some of those things, I would say you're not alone. But I would also say this, friends, we don't have to live that way. There is a way of life that Jesus says is defined by love and joy. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather have those things present in my life than that previous list. So how does Nehemiah practice abiding then? I don't know if you noticed after Nehemiah withdraws in the story, He confronts his pain by acknowledging it before God. 
he emotionally processes it within the cultural context of his day. In all the tears and the brokenness and all the accusations and questions of God, Nehemiah brings his pain before the Lord. It's what we call the spiritual discipline of lament. We've largely forgotten that discipline in the church in the West. But it is an essential discipline. Don't allow bitter times and dark days and broken relationships to take root in your soul and cause you to grow resentful towards the Lord. Rather, allow the Spirit to shine His light in those dark places. Then let it out and confess what's going on inside. Shout it, weep it, journal it, sing it. This is the ancient tradition of God's people. It is a healthy percentage of what's going on in the Psalms. I want to give you an example from my life from last year. My grand, my Gogo, she died last year during COVID. And I loved her very, very much. She was a, a lovely Christian lady. She was my first financial supporter on the mission field. And she went into hospital last year for a routine operation. And there she died after the operation in the recovery bay by herself. And man, it broke my heart. And I imagined her, advanced in years as she was, being alone and frightened in her last moments. My accusation to the Lord was this. God, how could you allow it? After all the years, she served you so faithfully. And friends, I want you to know that in the midst of my tears and my brokenness and my accusation of that mess in that quiet time that morning with God, I heard the gentle voice of Jesus say this to me. Ben, she wasn't alone. I was with her. Yes, it broke me. Psalm 23, friends, listen to the word of God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Jeez, in a moment, in my mind's eye, I was in that recovery bay with her. And I knew that the presence of Jesus was thick in the air. Fear was gone. Hope and love as Jesus took her home. Friends, this is the embodied practice of lament. We need to allow ourselves to feel our pain. God is not threatened by it, friends. He wants to heal us of our brokenness, of our pain. It's in the complaint that we confront the lies we've often believed. And in this mess that God graciously reveals himself and quietens our hearts as we experience the encompassing nature of his goodness. It's my third and final point this morning is we need to experience the beauty of abiding. Well, what is abiding exactly? Well, it's remaining in his words, but it's knowing and believing that you're connected to the very heart and the spirit of God. In other words, believing that Jesus is in us. Consider the context of the passage in the surrounding text, which we didn't read. It's bookended with Jesus talking about the coming work of the Holy Spirit. The fact that God has not abandoned us, but given us his precious spirit. That we have become the very residents of God on earth. 
This is how we will remain in his words. There's a living, conscious connection and communion with God. It's not an intellectual understanding only of what is factually true. But Jesus is a person to be experienced. In other words, knowing him must translate to relationship. And a game-changing thought for me in my Christian walk has been this. Is as Jesus calls us to connect with him, it's not unto a lecture or unto strictness. But it's unto love and joy. Jesus is the happiest, most joyful, loving person in the universe. How do you think of him? Do you think of him that way or do you think of him in some other way? He is not a cosmic headmaster waiting to shout at you when you mess up. Consider his words again from John 15. These things I have spoken to you that my my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's not unto productivity. He mentions joy and love. The helper's coming and he's the one who's going to be in you as we abide and relate to God. That produces fruit in us. And the primary fruit, as we're loved by God, as we allow ourselves to be loved by the Father, is love for one another. It's love for his body, his church. And then that spills out into the world, friends. Speaking of the meekness and gentleness of Jesus, this old English pastor called Thomas Goodwin said this. He said, we are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them no says he i am meek gentleness is my nature and my temper god is not holding his nose and tolerating us friends what does it mean it means this is that god's heart is joyful towards you he's not got you on his list of 730 appointments when you're doing your quiet time he's not saying aish I've got to put a smile on for this oak again. He's not saying that. He's longing to meet with his friends. Because he has an abundance of joy, he is a supply that doesn't finish. He loves to share his heart with us. And it gives glory to the Father when that is multiplied in the earth. When it's shared, it's never diminished. It never runs out. It's an eternal supply. I love the early church father, Ignatius. He said that before he did anything else in prayer, whether it be intercession or petition or or anything else, he would gaze at God and wait until he was aware of God looking back at him in love. And he wouldn't move on in his prayer life until he'd experienced that. If you don't know what that means, I would encourage you to find out. He first loved us. Don't rush, stay, linger, abide. Nehemiah models this by abiding and by praying. Prayer is quality time with God, but it need not be somber. It can be full of life and joy. I'll close with this illustration of the spiritual life, of what it means to abide. See, at the end of the day, my three children, being as young as they are, and having as much mud to play in, in my garden as they can possibly wish for, uh, often are covered head to toe. 
In fact, there's been occasions when they need to actually have two baths because they're so dirty. And when, they, when we run a bath for them, they're excited about that. But they're not excited about it because they're interested in hygiene. Okay, I can assure you. They are interested in how deep it's going to be, how much bubble bath we're going to use. They love to get in the bath and play together, and they have all kinds of games that they play. My favorite game that they play is beards. That's what they make out of the bubbles. It's super cute. Okay? They love to splash, splash and play, and it's pure joy for them, friends. And guess what? After all that time of being in the hot water, of soaking in the soap, they get clean. They get ready for the next day. They prepared for school. It's similar when we spend time with our Lord Jesus. He's not connecting in with us because he merely tolerates us. He loves us. He even likes us. Very often when we do some of this stuff, when we abide, the heavy things in our life that we cannot shift, he graciously removes for us. Church, I believe that Jesus is inviting all of us into a deeper level of rest with him and abiding with him. And if you can enter into that rest well, you will be more fruitful and more missionally present in your community. Let's pray. Jesus, we do want to thank you for your beauty this morning. And God, we want to thank you for your fantastic invitation in John 15 to come away and be with you. God, we want to repent, Lord. We want to change our thinking where we've allowed, uh, God, you to get the 1% of our schedule, which is left over. God, we want to give you the first fruits. God, we want to say this week, Jesus, you're our number one priority. God, we, w- we don't want to be productive at the expense of our souls. Lord, we don't want to be busy at the expense of fruitfulness. And so, God, we're praying for this church here this morning. God, I'm praying for my own life, God. Would you make us fruitful, Lord? God, would you make our fruit abound? And, and Father, as this body uh, begins to think about and set new trajectories for the future, God, I pray that that would be rooted in your very person. Father, not in performance, not in reaction. And Father, where there's still the bitter sorrow, God, of this past season, Jesus, I pray that you would gently lift it off. God, I pray that mourning would be turned into dancing. God, I thank you that your goodness is better than life. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.